And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and sat him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the words of our Savior, which we've heard just now. We pray that you would grant us your spirit to guide us into truth, deliver us from every distraction, deliver us from every error, we pray, and strengthen me as I uh, articulate these things. Open our ears, O Lord, to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have you ever had to have a conversation with a one-upper. Uh, a one-upper is a person who can't wait for you to finish your story so that they can immediately attempt to outdo you with their story. Their story is always bigger, it's always better, it's more elaborate, it's always funnier than yours, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about your vacation or your new toaster oven, their vacation or their new toaster oven will always be superior. They are smarter, they're more clever, they did more research than you did, and they got a deal that makes your experience look like absolute trash. Uh, for a one-upper, everything is a competition. Oh, you went to the gym yesterday? Well, they've been going every day for the last three months. Uh, you got a raise at work? Ha! Huh. Well, I got a raise, I got a promotion, and I got three months vacation, and I got a, a, a bonus on top of that. And it doesn't even have to be something good. If you break your arm, they'll tell you a story about when they broke two. Um, <laughs> you, you can't share anything with them that they already don't, don't know about. Uh, they, they've already checked the news, they've watched the video, they've read the book, they've seen the movie, they've read the article, and they'll let you know, eh, it really wasn't that great. Uh, I'm over it already and everything that you try to tell them. Everything they say is saturated with this competitive air of superiority. Except the reality is, is that their lives don't tend to be actually that great. One-uppers tend to be sad, insecure, anxious people who are desperate for attention, who try to pull you into these pretentious exchanges and they tempt you to compete over the silliest things. And really the only thing you can do is just bow out, is just let them have their win. Uh, just let, okay, okay, your air fryer is better than mine. All right, yeah, you win, uh, good job. Um, in the gospels, the, the apostles are not immune to this kind of one-upsmanship nonsense. They had this inflated sense of honor, and I'm talking about this ancient world honor, the kind you see in the Greek epics where men are willing to die, uh, not necessarily to protect precious things, not willing to die in defense of, of women and children and their homeland, but die over honor. Uh, you dishonored me, and therefore I'm going to fight you to the death. And this, this permeated the ancient world, and the apostles have this, this sense of honor that prevents them from grasping the humility that Jesus is calling them to. In our, uh, um, in our lectionary reading from the Gospels this morning, Peter rebukes Jesus because he feared that Jesus would be humiliated, that Jesus would lose faith if he goes to Jerusalem and he goes the route. 
that, that he's going to go. And so Peter doesn't want Jesus to lose honor, and he rebukes him. So the apostles seem to be carrying this idea that there's still victory waiting for them when they get to Jerusalem. When, when the people see Jesus' power, the, the apostles and Jesus together are going to be this unstoppable force. They're going to be this incredible force. Everybody's going to get out of their way. These men, fishermen, tax collectors, outsiders, have, have been um, on the outskirts of society their whole life. And now, now they'll finally be on top. When we get to Jerusalem, we'll be on top. We'll be over the Romans. We'll be over the scribes. We'll be over the Pharisees and all the elites. Just you wait and see. And all of this comes out in their conversations like the ones we see in Matthew 18. Just before this, you remember we studied last week, Jesus has just described himself as the son of the king. And he said, you disciples, you're also, you're sons, you're not strangers. You're free men, you're not slaves. In fact, in so many words, he says, you are princes. And that seems to go straight to their heads. They already have this assumption that life is a competition. You have to fight for honor and greatness and significance and influence. And by the way, there's only so much glory to go around. If you have glory that I don't have, then that's less for me, and I have to fight you to get the glory. I have to fight and claw to get what I think I deserve. So then they're thinking, okay, if we're all princes, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest among all of these? Who's the greatest? And Jesus directly undermines, he cuts right through all of their assumptions by calling a child over and setting this child in the middle of them and saying, you want to know who's the greatest? Here, right here. Here is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The word child that Matthew uses here is not the word for teenager. It's not the word for big kid. It's not the word for young man. It's a word you might have come across before in your Bible studies. It's paideon. Um, it's the word, it's the Greek word used for infants or very small children. So this is probably a toddler since Jesus calls him over and the child's able to walk. So it's probably a toddler. And at this point, um, what the, what the point that Jesus is making is not that children are sinless or that children are angels or that children are pure. The point that he's making is that very small children, babies, toddlers, they don't play the status games that we play. Children are not one-uppers. They are in a humble position of dependence and trust. They aren't trying to impress anybody. They're not trying to climb ladders of power or wealth. Those little babies that you have on your laps, the toddlers you are holding, and your children and grandchildren, they're not, they're not looking to get ahead of anybody. They're, they're, they're not trying to get up over anybody. In the ancient world, especially, children had no station. They, they had nothing similar to what we would call rights. They had no status. So Jesus first says in so many words, guys, you're asking the wrong question. If you're saying who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you don't understand the kingdom of heaven. If that's what's on your mind, who's the greatest? Nobody enters my kingdom unless they first lay down their worldly, prideful, ideas about status, this constant tug of war of competitive who's better than the other one all the time. Now he says, no, you need to be converted and you need to become like little children. You want to know who's great? Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what qualities do children possess that Jesus wants to see in his disciples? 
Well, the first one that he indicates in verse four is humility. He says, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He uses the word humility. Small children are more likely to pull back than they are to push themselves forward. That's why when you talk to a baby or you talk to a very small child, he's more likely to bury his head in his mother's shoulder. He's more often to hide behind his dad's leg than he is to really want attention, to seek attention. Children, small children, toddlers, babies, they're not looking for prominence. They aren't tempted by fame or attention the way that we are. They don't even understand it. Children don't promote themselves. They don't think that if I don't talk about myself all the time, then I'm never going to get ahead in life. Um, children don't feel this need to inflate themselves in front of us, to, to inflate their own reputation, to build themselves up. And children don't worry about what everybody else is thinking about them. I mean, just watch them, watch them play. They're not worried about how they look. They're not worried about how silly what they're doing appears. Uh, son, are you, are you putting rocks in your nose? Well, I'm putting rocks in my nose. It's fine, it's normal. And we, no, it's not, but it's okay because you're a kid and you're not worried about it. They have this free spirit about them. They're just um, playing and existing and, and enjoying being who they are. They're not worried about what people are saying about them. They don't obsess about everybody else's opinion of them. And children are not obsessed with how many likes or comments their pictures are getting online. You know, you, you post your baby's pictures and your kid's pictures, and um, they, they don't know anything about that. Do I get more likes than the other kid who got, I mean, if he got more likes than I did, then I must not be as cute as I thought I was. So let's do something cuter so I can get more likes the next time and the next go. They're not, they're not comparing themselves with each other. We are the ones. We are the ones who live with this grid of social ranking in our heads. The, we, we see people who have more than we have or who have opportunities that we haven't been given, and we look at them and we think, they must be over me. They must be better than me. And I actually, I covet what they have. I want it so badly. I live in envy for what they have. But here's my solace. Here's my comfort um, in my envy is that I look at other people who are worse off than I am, and I'm so much better than they are. Um, these folks are under me. They haven't used the opportunities they've been given. They have not, um, they've not used their resources as well as, as I have. I am way better than them. You see, all of life is this competition, all this restlessly competitive ranking when it shows up in the body of Christ, this, this, this ranking is, is divisive and it's hateful and it's prideful and has no place in the kingdom of heaven, has no place in the uh, flock and family of God, in the congregation of the Lord Jesus. So he says, Jesus says, be like children in your humility. Stop promoting yourself. Stop ranking yourself against everyone else. Stop living with this one-upsmanship all the time. Cut it out, uh, remove it, yourself from it. So Jesus exhorts us to imitate the humility of children. And secondly, we're to be like children in our Dependence. Children are born into a state of utter dependence. Now, in the animal world, babies are born walking. They're born swimming. They develop quickly. I mean, if you're a baby turtle, I mean, you have to get out of that shell and get after it because you're on your own. That's it. Good luck, buddy. Um, you might get eaten. You might get to the ocean, whatever, but you're on your own. Um, babies in the animal world have to, and they do, develop quickly. But God made man special in this way, that man must grow up slowly. 
boys and girls are dependent upon their parents for food, for shelter, for clothing, for protection, for comfort, for affection. A baby never believes that he can take on life by himself. He never even has a notion of that. A toddler is happy and content to be in a position of receiving good things from those who love and care for him. And, and children, toddlers and babies, they don't have this calculus of obligation and debt when it comes to receiving good things. If you give an adult a gift, uh, you often think that they're indebted to you. They, they at least owe you gratitude, and you better hope that they give you that gratitude in the way that you're expecting it, in the amount that you're expecting it from them. Uh, they owe you something. They are beholden to you. At the very least, they owe you gratitude, which is why, when we flip that around, we often feel very weird accepting gifts from other people. We f it feels odd to be on the receiving end of acts of kindness. It's difficult for us to receive good things because we think in the back of our mind, there's gotta be a transaction taking place. I've, I, I, I am now, I'm now obligated. I'm now beholden to this person who has done this thing for me. But you see, children, small children, haven't learned this at all. You give a child a cookie, he takes the cookie, he smiles and he eats the cookie, end of transaction, that's it. There's nothing else, transaction complete. You get the joy out of his smile and the fact he ate the cookie. There's no, there's no psychological gymnastics around whether now he owes you a cookie the next time he sees you or, or, or whether you're a better person as, as the dispenser of cookies uh, and he always needs them so he's less and lower on the rank than you are because you're the dispenser of cookies and he's the recipient all the time. No, the position that God created children in and the position God has created our, ch our children in is a position of absolute dependence upon his protection, upon his provision and comfort. And that is the position that we are all in and must recognize. We fool ourselves into thinking that Everything that we have is 100% the result of our own industry and our own intelligence. We're, we just so, we got this fabulous skill at being human, which is why we have what we have and the opportunities we have. When the reality is we have nothing. We have, we have nada, zip, apart from the blessing of the Lord. Do we work? Absolutely. We're faithful to use the gifts that God gives us. But he is the one who gives the increase. He is the one that causes our work to bear fruit. He's the one who gave us the opportunity and the health and the strength and the right circumstances to do our work to begin with. And he's the one who gives the fruit and the increase. And so in our dependence, we freely admit that. We openly admit that. Yeah, I've worked hard. I have worked hard. But without God's provision, without him blessing my work, my work is nothing. I am absolutely, completely dependent upon God. That is the position of a child and that absolute dependence. So like children, we're to be humble. Like children, we're to be dependent. Like children, we trust. A child, a small child, does not doubt his parents' love for him. He doesn't doubt whether they'll care for him or provide for him. Uh, what he needs. A child assumes that all the adults in his life have everything figured out and that all of the adults in his life are acting in his best interest. 
Even when the parents don't know what they're doing, he assumes that they know what they're doing. Or when people act in sinful ways toward children, children still assume that this is normal. But uh, our childlike orientation toward our Heavenly Father, uh, our good and wise Father, can be a position of absolute trust. He's never going to exploit our weaknesses. He's never going to take advantage of us. He's never going to abuse us. I know that my heavenly father is good. And I know that everything, therefore, that he gives me is for my good and for his glory. Even though I can't explain it, even there are things that he gives me that I don't understand, I am his child and therefore I trust. So Jesus says to his men, you gotta be like children. You wanna know who's greatest? Be humble, be dependent upon me, trust me. And when you take on this position, you will likewise receive those who are humble, dependent, and who trust him. You will receive little children, and you will receive those who are like them. And you, you flip this, this grid, this ranking, this, this ceaseless social ranking of everybody and everything in your life. You aren't worried any longer about attracting the richest people in the community to you. You aren't worried about hobnobbing with the famous and the powerful, the politicians, the academics, the pundits. If you get to hang out with them, that's fine, that's fine, but that doesn't change you. You don't idolize power. You are intoxicated by money or celebrity. You're more concerned about the poorest and the least and the sick and the widowed and the orphan. You're more concerned about them than you are about whether you get to hang around the cool kids. See, the apostles, in their mind, they're thinking, I want to receive princes. I want barons to come to me for my approval and my blessing. And uh, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to be prepared to receive kids. You need to be prepared to receive babies. That's, that's what my kingdom is all about. Be prepared to receive the littlest and the least. This, this matter of loving and receiving children and training children as parents, as a community, as a congregation, this, this matter of receiving children, it seems like a very long, hard road of work that is often thankless. There's, there's very little immediate gratification and immediate reward in this process of receiving and loving and caring for children and training them. There's, there's seemingly no glory, no glory in wiping noses and wiping bottoms and tying shoes and making lunches and waking up at two in the morning to clean up after a sick child there's no fun, there's no immediate gratification in disciplining and training and correcting and teaching these, these little knuckleheads, these little goofballs uh, who, who need to hear it over and over and over to get it right, right? Which why, it's why it seems much more glamorous and much more liberating to not have kids at all. I mean, why would, why would you ever do that to yourself? Why would you invite children into your community? Why would you invite children into your home? I can get a much better investment on my work doing a million other things, things that bring me immediate pleasure and satisfaction. Well, that's actually a myth. Never, ever, ever, ever forget that the work you are doing now with training and educating and feeding and clothing your kids that is the work that pays off the biggest dividends in eternity. This is the work that, that, that pays the biggest rewards in the kingdom of heaven. 
No work you will ever do will ever get a bigger return. I mean, you get to bring an eternal soul into the world and you get to shape and train and raise up this man, raise up this woman to worship the triune God. You get to populate the world with worshipers of our Father in heaven. And so that's why it's so important and special to listen to the value that Jesus puts on little ones, the value that he puts on children. Jesus commands us here to receive children in his name. And what we understand him to mean by this, when he says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me, what we understand that to mean is that we actually receive them. We rejoice over them. We want them. We see children as a reward. We see children as a treasure. Uh, We consider them part of God's flock and family. We include them in the assembly of the church. We include them in the participation of the sacraments. We expect that when God calls his people to assemble before him and to worship him, that means all of his people. As he explicitly, he calls for even nursing infants to come before him repeatedly in the scriptures. We've been looking at on Wednesday night, all the calls to worship in the Old Testament. Often God will call for even the nursing babes to come appear before him because they're his, because he wants their appearance there. We get these comments from time to time, and I know you've heard it. People who visit our our worship or visit our congregation or uh, people who meet us, we get these comments, man, y'all really make a big deal out of kids. You make a big deal out of children. And my response is, I hope so. I really hope so. I hope we do. I hope we never stop. Because Jesus says to receive children is to receive him. And if I want to receive Jesus and all that that comes with it, all that comes with receiving Jesus and all that means, if I want Jesus, I need to receive children. Now, sadly, in our day, as well as in Jesus's day, children are neglected and they're abused by sinful people. Uh, Every one of these attributes of children, their humility, their dependence, their trust, every one of these things is exploited by sick, destructive people. So Jesus has these terrifying warnings for anyone who would corrupt a child in verse six. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Imagine um, what it is like, what would it be like to be born in America today to just middle of the road secularist parents. And and by secularist people, I mean people who their lives are just not discipled by God's word at all. And, And we can even grant some things. We can even grant that they're even you know, slightly conservative. You know, they drive a Suburban and they listen to country music radio and they watch Fox News every once in a while and and they go to church on occasion. They might show up on Easter. They might show up around Christmas. You know, if there's not a a soccer tournament going on, if there's, um, you know, not a a softball tournament or baseball tournament going on, just, you know, if if there's nothing else going on, we we can go to church every once in a while. What would it be like though being born to a, a, a family who is not discipled at all by God's word and who just are kind of riding the waves of our society and culture. Well, the fact that you're born in the first place is a wonder. You've already run the gauntlet of all forms of abortion, so, so that's incredible that you're born. 
And then as you come into the world, you're exposed to this narrative from very early on that you're just a result of biological processes. You just happened. You're not a special creation of God. Your parents dote on you when they're with you, but that attention is contingent on their schedule. You spend lots of time in, in daycare. Uh, you watch videos and cartoons and movies with warped agendas about what a family is, what is funny, what is not funny, what is good, what is bad until you make it to government school where you're expected from a very early age to, uh, to you're exposed to complex sexual issues and concepts that are well beyond your capacity and ability to understand. If you make it to adolescence without being absolutely confused about who you are, you've been told by this point that you're a cosmic accident, you're a result of the Big Bang, you're a descendant of apes, and actually, you're a parasite on this planet. You, little child, are destroying this planet with your family's car and your air conditioning and your plastic water bottle. You don't belong here. You're destroying the world. And then by the time you get to middle school, you get a full measure of environmentalism and feminism and critical race theory and hatred of Western civilization and this glorification of homosexuality, this glorification of transsexuality. All of your heroes are all of the people who oppose Christendom. All of the heroes are all the people who oppose Western civilization. And all of your villains are the people who built it. All of your villains are the people who built and upheld Western civilization. And the goal of all of this, and there is a goal, because there is a mastermind behind it, there is a goal. The goal of all this is to turn you into an ideologue, a, a radical Marxist political advocate. That's the goal. Add to that over the last few years, the pseudo-scientific mandates that have separated you from your friends, that have demoralized you and dehumanized you. Also, if you're a girl, you might have to share a locker room with a boy. You might have to compete against males who say they're females. If you're a boy, you're discouraged from being comfortable in your masculinity because everything that's traditionally male, everything that's creationally male is toxic. So, so you, you have to be uncomfortable in your masculinity. If you make it through this all somehow without joining some identity group with multiple perceived intersections of oppression, if you come through this without any radical hormone treatment or physical abuse, then you just go to state college where all of this nonsense has turned up to 11, where you become almost irreversibly radicalized. Um, that's, that's what's in store for you if you're born in America, just in a regular secular family who's not thinking about any of this, who just kind of puts you on the assembly line and send you through the paces. Well, this active, systematic corruption of children is all very present. It's all very real for us in this generation. We need to know that none of this is new. None of this is new. This is all part of a very old program of Satan to corrupt and to destroy children. Satan has had his sights set on the woman and her seed from the very earliest pages of Genesis. He goes after the children in Egypt. He goes after the children in Bethlehem. He wants to destroy the little ones. And thus, we have this strong warning of Jesus. Jesus says, if you corrupt one of these little ones, if you cause them to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the deepest part of the sea. What kind of language is that? What, what is he talking about that? Well, in Revelation 18, this is what happens to the harlot city, Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is cast like a millstone into the sea. Jesus says and promises utter destruction to those who corrupt, abuse, mutilate 
warp, and destroy children. So don't be fooled. Do not be fooled. This program that I just described, it's not accidental. It's not well-intentioned. You know, these are just kind of do-gooders, a little off-kilter. They just, they just don't understand some things. They're trying to do what's best. They're trying to love kids. They're just trying to go off in just a little different way. No, this is a deliberate, intentional effort to isolate kids from their parents, to corrupt them, and to turn them against their families. And in the process to unravel society so that those in power can maintain power and influence and control over these isolated, uh, 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 radicalized kids who don't even know who they are. And know this, and this is our statement to that. This is what we say, this is what we declare, that if your agenda and your plans for the world involve leading children to sin and destruction, your program is doomed. Your empire is doomed. Jesus will bring you to utter ruin, absolute destruction. This is what we pray for. This is the judgment we pray for and expect and hope for. We pray, oh Lord, how long? How long until Jesus smashes this, this rebellion and this, um, this, this agenda? Uh, so take courage. Take courage as you uh, scratch your heads and as you see the insanity, take courage that all of this stuff has an expiration date. And so while we pray for its speedy end, we also take every measure to shield our families from it. So as he goes through this teaching, Jesus expands on his definition of little ones because it grows to include not only children, but those who like children, humbly enter his kingdom. He says, offenses are gonna come. Persecution is coming. Hardship is coming. But woe to the man through whom they come. He's not going to leave him um, uh, without judgment, the man who brings these offenses. And then Jesus says, here's, here's how you defend holy things. How, how do you protect the little ones? Verse eight, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than, than having two hands or two feet than to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. So he's already made this warning against the active corruption of children. If you cause children to stumble, um, leading children to sin. He's already addressed that, but now there's kind of a passive allowance of corruption that, that creeps in. This, this allowing harmful influences to hang out and not doing anything to stop their sickening influence. This is the same language of radical amputation that Jesus uses back in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus talked about adultery, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If something is causing you to sin, remove it, cut it off. In, in similar language, um, Paul is gonna talk about the, um, the, the issue of church discipline in, in his letters to the Corinthians, this language of sickness and defects in the body, uh, and, and Paul is gonna use that same model later. In fact, church discipline comes up in the same chapter. We're gonna save that for next week uh, in the middle of chapter 18. However, in this immediate context, a people who receive children, a people who humble themselves like children, a people who have patience with little ones must also be faithful to cut out those things which cause little ones to stumble. 
Jesus uses this dramatic imagery, cutting off uh, bad body parts. He, he uses it like cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, to drive home the point how seriously we must take this corruption. In part, we can take it to mean that our duty in training little ones is to see that they remain children, childlike, in those areas that Jesus commends to his disciples. In other words, we want our children to grow in maturity. We want them to desire the meat of the word, but to remain childlike in their humility, in their dependence, and in their trust in their heavenly father. We want them to remain have a childlike humility all their lives, that they don't adopt this worldly pride. They don't, they don't adopt this worldly competitiveness that, that, that shapes everything. They don't have this arrogance and this, this desire to peacock over other people. We don't want young people, we don't want teenagers, especially young men and women who are just you know too cool for school, too cool for worship, too cool for uh, the Psalms, too cool for God's word, too cool for, you know, just uh, they have their, their nose in the air and just can't be bothered with uh, the, the, the things that we do together as a, as a congregation. No, we're called, what do you cut off? You cut off vainglory. You cut off all forms of, of pride so that they remain humble. But secondly, we want to uh, that they we want to maintain their childlike dependence upon God, which which calls for gratitude. So we don't we don't tolerate whining, we don't tolerate complaining or carping about everything. You know, when when a young child or a, or a teenager starts to talk like this, everything that is wrong in my life is everybody else's problem. Everybody is always mean to me. Nobody ever, nobody ever treats me fairly. My failures are everybody else's fault. Nothing ever, nothing ever works out for me. You know, that kind of continual complaining, it's, it's unattractive and it's unbecoming to have a five-year-old that's whining all the time. It's even more shameful to have a teenager or a 20-something who gripes all the time. No, we cut off, what do we cut off? We cut off grumbling, we cut off complaining, um, cut off vainglory, cut off complaining and grumbling, and then we train them to trust all their lives. We disciple them through their worries. We disciple them through their fears and their anxieties. Son, trust in the Lord. Uh, baby girl, rest, rest in him. All you, take comfort in his goodness and his promises. You know, the, the, the secular, pagan, worldly teenager has everything to fear and nothing to hope in. But, but son, you aren't like that. You aren't that way. You are surrounded by a great cloud of provision. You have safety net after safety net of love and care and help in the body of Christ. You have multiple redundancies of protection in your life. You're not an orphan. You're a son. So put away anxiety. You see, that's, those are the things. When Jesus talks about cutting off these things that cause us to sin, here are three Things to cut, cut off pride, cut off grumbling, put away, cut off anxiety and trust. We cut off everything that in, influences and introduces pride and grumbling and fear. And so in that, we do without whatever we have to do without. We make sacrifices wherever necessary. Whatever we gotta do to preserve us and our little ones from corruption and from the lies of the devil. And we happily make these changes. We happily do the work 
We don't despise our little ones or the adjustments we have to make for them. We don't despise their weakness or despise their dependence upon us. And Jesus warns about spite in the very next verse. He says in verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Psalm 91 says that God has given us his angels uh, to have charge over us. That God has given us his angels to keep us in all his ways, to bear us up lest we dash our foot against a stone. Is there any biblical support for the idea that God has given us his angels to guard us? Is there any biblical support for the idea of a guardian angel? Well, if you read Psalm 91, and from what Jesus says here, it sure sounds like it. When, when speaking of little ones, Jesus says, their angels behold the face of the Father. God cares so much for your little ones that he has assigned angels to keep them, to watch over them and protect them so that when you're asleep, their angels are not sleeping. Their angels are caring for them and watching over them and protecting them. And so our duty toward our children is to participate in that heavenly mission of watching and protecting. We pray that God would keep our children safe from every disease, from every danger, and God gives his angels charge over them. And he gives us responsibilities toward them too, to protect and provide and to keep them from wandering which is the last little section we're going to read. Verse 11, <clears throat> for the son of man who has come, to, has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God the Father's orientation towards your little ones is love. It's a love that rejoices over them. It's a love that pursues them and hunts them down and pulls them in. It's a love that's not satisfied to say, well, I've got 99. I mean, what's one? I lose one. That's not a big deal. I've got 99. Why do I need one more? No, it's a love he describes here that, that can't spare even one of his own. It's a love that isn't content until everybody's in the house, until everybody's in the fold. It's a patient love that knows well that sheep are dumb creatures and they get themselves into sticky situations and they're prone to wander. We, we aren't so patient. We, we aren't so patient with people who get themselves in trouble. We aren't patient with people who do dumb things to mess up their lives, people who have no one to blame but themselves. But the love of the shepherd is the love of one who crosses mountains to go find them the one who strained. Did you see that? He says, um, he uh, goes to the mountains to seek the one who's, who's straying. It's an active seeking love that isn't content to wait around until the sheep shows up again, but who leaves to go find it. And it's a rejoicing love that is ecstatic. It, it is, is delighting in the fact to have a lost sheep return home. This is the love of the father that we imitate toward each other and toward our little ones, and expanding that, those who have humbly entered the kingdom as children, uh, new believers, and those others who have become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. You could say it's humiliating for the shepherd to act this way. It's beneath him to go all this trouble for foolish, stinky sheep. He's above that, right? He's got better things to do. He'll never move up in the world if this is how he spends his time. That's super inefficient. You got 99, why take the risk? Just stay back. 
Hold on to the 99. And yet, this is how the Father gives himself to us. This is how the Father himself demonstrates what's actually important in his kingdom. This is how things run. We have this calculus, we have this, this metric of, of superiority, better and lesser than. And he says, no, 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 you see, in my kingdom, the shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. The shepherd will go after the straying sheep. This is how things run. And also, the one who is the son, the one uh, who is the begotten, the one who is, has humbled himself like a child, the capital S son, is exalted over all things. He becomes the king over all things. And, and we in him, we with him, if, if we become like children. So people of God, reject pride, jettison all, all of the social ranking, the uh, one-upsmanship, the competition, reject it, eject it, remove yourself for it. Let's develop, continue to develop a community where we, there's not even time. We're so busy loving and serving and giving. There's not even time for this competitiveness. And then continue to receive children without spite, but to receive children gladly. Cut off anything that would cause them to stumble. And so we will obey our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of our Savior. We ask you to give us your spirit so that we might obey them and might please you in all things. Father, strengthen us with this word. Continue to uh, marinate our hearts and minds in it this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.